Good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden as we continue our year-long journey through the Torah as we are in the last book of the Torah, Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're coming across uh, week 46 or portion 46 of the Torah's 54 assigned divisions. Uh, before we begin properly this evening, I do want to give you an update as far as uh, the schedule and when uh, our next time together will be. Uh, we'll, be um, we'll have three weeks off, actually, because some of it is I will be traveling in Israel and Greece, uh, leading some tours and doing some activities. Uh, won't be gone the entire time of missing these times together, but uh, still prevents me from being here on a Monday evening. So the next time uh, Echoes will meet will be... Monday, August 28th. Monday, August 28th. So three weeks off. Uh, I'll try to get out an email maybe this week, kind of heads up on that, and then also an email uh, sometime closer to uh, the 28th, uh, reminding everyone of when we pick back up. Uh, so if you know someone that sometimes attends that isn't here in person in this class, uh, if you could get the word out to them, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, and so certainly also covet your prayers uh, as uh, 36 souls uh, venture over to the holy lands of Israel and Greece uh, sometime next week. So uh, looking forward to that. So let's get started now with the blessing before the study of Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech o'elam, asher kedishanu b'misvatav v'sivanu le'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. So this week, the 46th division of the Torah is the portion known as Ekev, Ekev, and it covers Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12, and goes through chapter 11, verse 25. Uh, last week in that portion, we got introduced somewhat to what is known as the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through verse 9 forms what is known as the first paragraph of the Shema. And as we talked about, 42 words in that first paragraph. Uh, but the Shema is actually more than that one paragraph. It has a, a second paragraph, which is in this week's portion. And it has 72 words. Uh, which correspond, uh, like the 42 words, corresponded to the 42-letter name of God. The 72 words of the second paragraph correspond to the 72-letter name of God. So not only is there a 42-letter name of God, there is a 72-letter uh, name of God. And that occurs in this week's portion. Uh, so, uh, again, just kind of reiterating what we've said each week we've been in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy's covering the last 37 days of the life of Moses. Uh, Moses knows this. Moses knows that his time in this world, in this dimension, is coming to a close. Uh, he knows that he is going to uh, end this earthly pilgrimage on, uh, if you will, the, the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, and it will be Joshua who will take uh, the, uh, the children of Israel across that Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, the land of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and so Moses takes that opportunity to kind of give a farewell address uh, where he kind of relives, reinstate, restates uh, aspects of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He also gives warnings. Uh, he has prophetic moments where he speaks to things that will happen. And he also gives admonishment uh, of uh, how... The, the children of Israel are to live in the land once they cross over. Uh, and so lots of, lots of that still goes on in each week's portion. So what about this week's portion in Ekev? What is exactly happening? Well, the word Ekev means because in Hebrew. 
because, and that's kind of going to be uh, our theme word for this week, or or to think about it, our energy word for this week, you know, because, and just ponder how often we use that word in English, uh, and in the different ways we use that in English, right? I do this because, uh, and that could be the motivation that is why I do it, or I do this because, and you could talk about why you're being forced to do it, or um, just the nuances to the word because. And so we're going to kind of focus in on that in this week's portion, uh, a little bit in each section, but especially as we get to that final one and being mindful. Uh, so it means because, uh, kind of comes from that first verse of the portion. Uh, and in, as the portion begins, Moses, again, is continuing his closing address, his farewell address, his uh, commencement address to the children of Israel. And he promises them in this week's portion that if they fulfill the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah, they will prosper in the land they are about to conquer and settle. Uh, and they will do so in keeping with God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where it behooves us to remember uh, our mindset, that first century Galilean mindset. And so when we read portions of the Torah that speak about, if you do this, then you will be blessed, that it's not really teaching a works righteousness, because remember, mitzvot comes from zavta, which means connection. And so it's more God is saying, look, there are appropriate ways you communicate with me and connect with me, and there are inappropriate ways you communicate and connect with me. If you do things appropriately, then appropriate things happen. And so it's not like a promise of blessing and a promise of curse. Uh, rather, it's kind of the logical consequence. No different than a parent raising a child. If the child is consistently uh, back-talking the parent, consistently undermining the parent, consistently stealing from the parent, consistently physically harming the parent, uh, and so forth and so on, there's going to be a strained relationship with the parent. Is that the parent's fault? Is the parent cursing the child? Is the parent really like punishing the child because it's this evil dictate? Or vice versa, a child that is obedient, that does what pleases their parents, that does desire to have a good relationship with them. Does this mean that's why the parents are blessing them, or is it because that's what enables the relationship to actually prosper the way it's supposed to? All right, same kind of thing goes in when you're reading the scriptures. It's putting these concepts into the language of men so that it's easy to grasp, it's easy to understand, it's easy to pass on to your children. Uh, but just keep that in mind when Moses is speaking of this. He's really speaking of connecting. All right, connecting with God according to the way that God has provided. Moses then also rebukes the children of Israel for their failings in the first generation as a people, as a nation. He recalls their worship of the golden calf. He recalls their, the incident, the rebellion of Korak, the sin of the spies, the angering of God at various places along the way. Uh, he even says, quote, You have been rebellious against God since the days I knew you. But he also speaks of God's forgiveness. He speaks of the second tablets which God inscribed and gave to the people following their repentance. So uh, Again, reminding them that even though they broke that very intimate connection, which was really a marriage at Sinai and the giving of those first tablets, and then when Moses broke them and essentially signifying, symbolizing that the covenant had been broken, that the marriage had been broken, that the relationship between the people and their God had been severed, that God gives them a second set of 
tablets, that he does forgive, that he does restore, that he does renew, that he does repair. And so Moses very much gives them the balance of law and gospel. Uh, he, he certainly convicts them. He certainly makes them aware of their sin and their shortcomings and their failings. But he also encourages them with the faithfulness of God, the loving kindness of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. Their 40 years in the desert, says Moses to the people, during which God sustained them with daily manna from heaven. Moses says that was to teach them, quote, that a person does not live by bread alone, but on the devar in Hebrew, the utterances, the word, the, in many ways, the, the stuff of God's mouth. That is what man lives by. We probably are used to it being phrased, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the Lord's mouth. Moses reminds him that that was one of the main lessons of having the manna miraculously provided every day. Uh, because he describes that the land they are about to enter is one that's flowing with milk and honey, and that it's blessed with what are known as the seven kinds of species. That's wheat, barley, grapevines, figs, pomegranates, olive oil, and dates. Each of those seven species of the land of Israel uh, are ripe with symbolism. encourage you to go listen on the archives to Ekev and previous Torah classes that I have taught where we've spent quite a bit of time on these seven species, the wheat, the barley, the grapevines, the figs, the pomegranates, the olive oil, and the dates. Um, and that this is like this place of God's providence in this world. And Moses commands them to destroy any idols of the land when they enter into it, uh, whoever their former masters may have been, and to beware lest they become haughty and begin to believe that, quote, it was my power and the might of my hands that have gotten me this wealth which again connects back to the lesson of the manna. Moses doesn't want them to think that once they enter into this land and they begin to prosper and they begin to experience abundance and they begin to experience victories over enemies and they begin to experience property ownership and their properties being uh, prosperous and, and, and them just living well, that they do not think that it's because of their hard work, that they do not become deceived and think it's because of their own ingenuity or their own understanding of things, that they must never forget that it is God working through them and for them on their behalf, giving these gifts to them, just as the manna was from heaven. So everything we receive in abundance, everything we receive as blessing is a gift from God. Uh, a key passage in this week's portion of Ikev, as I've already mentioned, is the second paragraph of the Shema, uh, which repeats the fundamental uh, aspects that were enumerated in the first paragraph. And again, it describes the rewards, if you will, uh, for fulfilling God's mitzvot, his commandments, as well as the adverse results, which is famine and exile, which is essentially lack uh, if you neglect the proper connections. Uh, it also is this portion, the second paragraph, uh, is the source of the precept of prayer and includes a reference even to the resurrection of the dead in the Messianic age. So that's kind of the summary uh, of the portion. So I thought we would kind of dive in a little bit and as, as we've done throughout Echoes of Eden, um, I try to expose you to the different ways that uh, the text has been approached throughout history, especially through uh, the Jewish people and their eyes and their understandings, and especially within that, those that would have been alive and well at the time that our Messiah Jesus was alive on earth and teaching and interacting with his people in the Holy Land of Israel. Uh, and then that helps us better understand what the the view of Scripture was in Jesus' day uh, and how they understood things, which can then help us understand better the actual ministry 
life and teachings of Jesus himself. Uh, and so I want to do that today uh, by looking at something I've mentioned before, uh, but we'll continue to go a little bit deeper into that concept. And that is the idea of reciting 100 blessings a day. Uh, again, we've talked about that. So just like we recited a blessing before we started this evening, right? Barukata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech That's how they all begin. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. And then it's what are you blessing God for? And so we blessed God before the study of Scripture this evening. We blessed him for giving us uh, the gift that is the Torah. And that's also how we conclude uh, our time and study. And so that would be two of the 100. And you bless God for everything, uh, not just happy things or good things, but also e even difficulty. You know, uh, for instance, uh, it's very common that, and it would have been very much in Jesus' day as well, when you hear of the death of someone, that you say, Baruch Dana Hamet, uh, blessed is the true judge, which means you don't know why this death came about, what brought the death about. You know nothing about it, but you trust that God is a true judge and that God is kind of in charge, nothing slipping under God's radar, uh, that God knows this, God's got this, and that you're just submitting uh, to that aspect, even if you don't understand it, even if you don't like it or agree with it or comprehend it, uh, you're, you're still submitting to the idea that God is sovereign. And so even upon hearing that, but there's blessings when you see a rainbow, there's blessings when you hear thunder or see lightning, there's blessings before all the various types of uh, food, there's blessings before you eat, there's blessings after you eat, uh, you, you name it. Uh, but the goal is to say 100 blessings a day. Uh, on a, just a, a very psychological level, uh, the reason that would have been instructed or given as a good way to connect to God is because if it's, you know, in our language today, the, the kind of term we would use is it's mindfulness. It's how to be mindful. Uh, if you're constantly before you read a book, before you, you know, uh, have a meeting, before you eat, uh, before you go visit a friend, after you visit a friend, after you've heard good news, after you've heard not so good news, whatever it may be, you're blessing God, then you're bringing God consciousness to the forefront, and you're constantly involving God in your life, and you're constantly being aware of what's in front of you, uh, whether that should means you should be thankful for this, whether it means you should be introspective of this, whether it means you should be sad for this, whether it means you should be entering into a time of mourning or grieving, whether it's a time of rejoicing, uh, it's a time to contact someone or reach out to someone. It's constantly making you aware that it's not all about you. It's not all about you and that it's, there's a, it's a bigger picture. And so just on a very basic level, but a very impactful level, the hundred blessings a day just changes perspective. It absolutely changes perspective. Uh, where did this custom come from? And then we're going to see one of the places, one of the places is actually in this week's portion. If you read it the way first century Galilean uh, read scripture. So again, speaking of this tradition of saying 100 blessings a day, it derives from what is known as a darash, uh, kind of an expansion, a uh, homiletic interpretation of the following verse that comes from this week's portion. It's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, which reads this way. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? There's so much going on in that verse. We'll kind of dissect a little bit of it now. But just uh, there's a plethora of things going on in this verse. And so if you look in your first century Hebraic toolbox and you see in there not only are numbers not just numbers and not only are places not just places, but also sometimes um, because Hebrew has no vowels, right? 
words are just very pregnant with meaning. And you say, well, is it this word? You know, kind of like, is it dog or is it dug? Is it D-O-G or is it D-U-G, right? And that could really make a difference in a sentence, don't you think? Like dog and dug, but all you have is D-G. Now, a lot of times context is going to help you, such as, oh, I better get home. Uh, you know, I haven't fed the dug lately. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I guess theoretically your baby could be named D-U-G Doug, uh, but probably not. It probably lets you know you're talking about your D-O-G but sometimes in Hebrew, the words, the consonants, all of them are related. They just are different nuances and so forth. And so one of the approaches to Scripture is, let's read it with all of those meanings. Let's read it this way. Let's read it that way. Let's read it that way. And it's not, well, which one is true? It's rather, all of them are true, but how is it applicable? When are they? When is that true? When do I apply this one? When do I apply that one? And so then you have a very, what some would call a plastic text or a rubber text. It's very stretchy, like Stretch Armstrong, and you can twist it as, and put it into place as life is dealing with you. Uh, and each one of them it's one of the tools in your Hebraic toolbox. If you look at it, I even give it to you in Hebrew, but it means this and this, or this and that, are both the words of God. All right? And so it, it allows you to, to have flexibility in the text. So I say all of that because when the, the ancient sages would look at this verse and they would see the phrase, you know, what does the Lord your God require of you? You see that phrase in there. Well, the Hebrew word for what is ma, which, by the way, is also uh, a name of God. So is me, who, because it'll be like, me is like God, which is saying the name me is God and so forth. But ma means what? Or mea means 100. And so they would look at this and say, okay, it's fine when you look at it to say, what does the Lord your God require of you? Reads very plain on the Peshat level. Remember the four levels? Peshat, Remez, Darash, Sod, Pardes. That reads fine on the Peshat. It's very understandable. What does the Lord your God require of you? However, they also understood it to mean 100 does the Lord your God require of you, meaning those 100 blessings. And since every blessing is essentially an expression of gratitude and thanks for God's kindness, saying 100 daily blessings encourages a person to constantly recognize how grateful he or she should be to God. And through such consistent acknowledgement of God's role in one's life, a constant connection to God is maintained it is established, uh, and it's encouraged. But as I said, there's actually quite a bit going on in this verse as we then begin to play with words and numbers and letters and numbers. It's important to note that in Hebrew, the word to be, as we look at the verse, uh, in awe or fear, so you can translate that, what does the Lord your God require of you? Uh, but to fear the Lord, to be in awe of the Lord, that that word in Hebrew is uh, irah, irah, which just as a little personal pet peeve, if you listen to Christian radio and you may have heard a song called Jaira, it's because even though I know it's a very popular song and a bestseller, it's because who wrote that song? didn't know a lick of Hebrew because it's really supposed to be Yira, not Jaira. All right? But that's Jaira. Okay? That's Yira, to be in fear, to be in awe of. It's Gematria, when you add up its letters, equals 216. Now, Yira is considered to be the inner dimension of what is known as Gevura. 
boundaries, the, the left side, the strictness, judgment, the ability to say no. And that is always in the scriptures associated with the biblical character Isaac. Abraham is on the right side. Abraham is kessid. Abraham is yes with no boundaries. Doesn't even know what the word no is. Uh, bestows freely. Gives. Outwardly focused. Givora is the other side of that. That knows restriction. That knows constraint. That knows the importance of setting boundaries. Right, And then of course you want to have to ferret in the middle, which means beauty. And in life, you want to know how to balance. When am I merciful? When do I apply the rules? When do I give grace? When do I not give grace? The ability and the wisdom to know which is which and when to do which is called beauty, to ferret, which is the central column. But Yirah is associated with Isaac. And interestingly enough, Gavora is also 216, like Urah, and so that makes a really tight association with Isaac. And we mention this this evening because there is an essential connection not only between Isaac and Urah, but also the number 100. There's a connection of Isaac to 100 as well. For instance, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And the birth of Isaac was the ultimate fulfillment of God's command to Abraham to go to yourself. Remember all the way back in Echoes of Eden when we were in Sefer Bereshit in the book of Genesis and we came to, I believe it was the third portion of the Torah, um, Genesis 12, and it was called Lake Laka. Remember that? And Lake Laka, when we looked at the spelling of it in Hebrew, we saw that it was the two words, lake and laka, were spelt identical. They were spelt identical, but they mean two different things. Lake, go, laka, to yourself. And so God's command to Abraham when he comes to him says, go, go to yourself, to the land that I will show you. Implying to us that Abraham's journey wasn't primarily a physical journey, though it involved that, but the real journey that Abraham would be embarking upon was an interior journey, a journey into himself. If you weren't around back in Echoes in Lake Lakad, go listen to the archive of that class and, and, and kind of fill yourself in with that. But Lake Lakad, when you add up that, guess what? It equals... 100, right? Since Isaac ensured that all of Abraham, that everything Abraham attempted to accomplish was completed, he was most certainly the fulfillment of Abraham developing his inner potential to the command to lech lecha, to go to yourself. And from this we can learn that our children are a manifestation in this world of our own truest self. So Abraham's 100 years old. And he has Isaac also fulfilling, to the greatest degree, part of what the Lake Lakah was all about, which is also 100. And then later when Isaac was on his own, he was his own man, digging his own wells. Remember all of that from Genesis? Right? See how we're building on all of this stuff? Uh, he states this in the Torah, Genesis 26, 12. Isaac sowed in that land, and he found in that year a hundredfold, and God blessed him. He planted in that year and received a hundred measures in return. This blessing, receiving a hundred, is in a sense the spiritual source of the traditional reading of the verse as an allusion to the importance of reciting 100 blessings each day. We plant the seeds of thanksgiving and divine praise, and we receive a hundredfold back. And there is furthermore tradition regarding the four letters of Isaac's name in Hebrew. Isaac's name in Hebrew is Yitzhak. Yitzhak. Um, and the first letter in Isaac's name in Hebrew is the letter Yud, which has the numerical value of ten, which represents the ten tests of Abraham, his father. The second letter is the Zadi, 
which equals 90, which was the age of his mother Sarah when she gave birth to Isaac. The third letter is the Chet, equaling eight, symbolizing the eighth day of the Brit Mila, the circumcision of Isaac, because Isaac was the very first Hebrew to be circumcised at eight days old. And the final letter in Isaac's name is a Kuf, which equals 100, the age of Abraham when Isaac was born. And so in light of all this, we suggest that here the letter Kuf in Isaac's name also represents God's blessings to him of his reaping a hundredfold. So that is an example, again, of taking a verse like that, pulling out your Hebraic toolbox, and putting it to work. And then you can see, oh, there's a Peshat. It means exactly what it says as we're looking at it right now. But then, what does that do for me now? How does me knowing 4,000 years later some of these things Moses says? Some, of, some things wouldn't really mean anything to me. It's just history. Or at best, it's good advice. But when we take our toolbox, then we learn how to take every verse, every word of the Bible, and keep diving in and keep, as it would say in the Mishnah, turning it over and over and over and over. You can just keep on flipping it and it just keeps on connecting to something else, which connects to something else, which connects to something else. And quite honestly, it doesn't ever end. It doesn't ever end. And that's how the Word of God is forever, forever applicable and forever worthy of our study. There's no way you get it all. There's no way you understand it all. There's no way you fathom it all. There's no way you know it all. There's no way you have a teacher that knows it all. At best, you want a teacher that just knows more than you. And then you can teach someone that doesn't know as much as you. That's just how it works. But you could take a verse like Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, and understand from that I need to have a mindfulness of God that a hundred times a day, and again, it's not even that it's literal, like let me, let me be very Western, let me make a check, and once I hit a hundred, I'm good to go, something like that. No, I think, you know, it means have this mindful approach and then to see the connection that it makes to Isaac and then all the different ways a hundredfold or a hundred comes up in Scripture, and then what does that then add to informing me more about this verse? It goes on and on and on and on. And so I just sometimes like to give you examples so that you know that that Hebraic toolbox, that more than anything, in echoes, I don't want to teach you facts that you're then like, isn't this interesting? Now I know X. I want to give you tools so that you're like, you know what? Now I know how to use a hammer, a screwdriver, a chisel, uh, a sandpaper. I know how to and look at the things I can create. Look at the things I can make with that. Like, it's so much more than if I just taught you today, I'm going to teach you how to make a little sailboat. And then that's all you know. But what if I give you the tools where you can make all kinds of beautiful things? And so familiarize yourself with that toolbox and really start applying it when you're reading Scripture because it will greatly aid you. And again, it will put you in tune with the mindset of our, of our Messiah. Like Paul in his epistles even encourages us Having you the mind of Christ. Having you the mind of Christ. Part of that is approach the world the way Christ approached the world. Approach the Father in heaven the way he approached the Father in heaven. Approach the scriptures the way he approached the scriptures. Approach reality the way he approached reality. Having you the mind of Christ. And part of that mind of Christ was knowing these tools in the toolbox, which again, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, when he's walking with the two disciples who don't recognize him, and it says, so he opened the scriptures, the law, the words of Moses, the writings, the Psalms, and explained to them all things 
and how they all pointed to him. These are the things he was doing. This is how he took a text and then said, boom. All right, Messiah our Ekev. As I said, Ekev is going to be a kind of our uh, theme for tonight. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12, it says, Then it shall come about Ekev, because. So there's the word. That's where it's at in the text. Deuteronomy 7.12. It shall come about Ekev, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you with his uh, will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your forefathers. His kesed, that's loving kindness. So the portion Ekev begins with a powerful because. Right? Have, have you ever asked someone, why are you doing that? And all they say is, well, because. And then they don't say anything else. Because. Right? You kind of get that in this text, right? It's a powerful because. The word Ekev meaning because. This portion says that because, because Israel obeys the Torah, God will love, bless, and multiply the nation. It goes on to illustrate the point by promising a blessing on the land and the people for their obedience, while at the same time warning them of falling into sin as they have done in the past. Now, from a messianic perspective, from a road to Emmaus perspective from a shadows of the Messiah being cast over the text perspective. We recognize that the blessing and love of God that we enjoy, they do result because of obedience to the Torah. But not really our obedience, but namely Messiah's obedience. Because his righteousness has merited God's favor for us. Because Messiah has earned the love of God for us. Because Messiah himself was sent for us. Because of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. In other words, Messiah, Jesus, is our because. Because of Messiah, because of his righteousness, because of his sacrificial death, because of his gospel call to repentance, we are able to enjoy the love, the blessing, and the favor of the Father. Because. Because of this, we should be all the more eager and earnest to emulate Messiah's obedience to the words and the commandments of God. So Messiah is our Ekev. Let's keep looking in the text. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 reads, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So in an effort to compel the children of Israel to maintain a proper connection and relationship to the Torah, Moses reminded them of their last 40 years in the wilderness. Since leaving Egypt, God has provided for their every need. When you read through the text, you see that their clothes never wore out and their shoes never wore out. The 40 years, no, if you've caught that yet in the Torah or not, it's there. They never had to change clothes or get new clothes. 40 years of walking around the desert and they never needed new shoes. Everything miraculously survived the 40-year-long journey. God fed them manna from heaven, and this provision proceeded directly from none other than the hand of God. 
And so in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Moses says that God fed them manna to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. What's something deeper going on here? A person might suppose that he subsists on things like bread and water and other consumables necessary for sustaining human life. Based upon those such simple hand-to-mouth philosophy, human existence is reduced to merely surviving. Surviving for food, shelter, and clothing. But Jesus refutes such folly. Jesus says, Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Matthew 6, verse 25. And then he chides us in Matthew 6, verse 32. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. When a person becomes fixated upon the material world, he expends his effort for material things. The miracle of the manna was given in order to remind the children in the wilderness, the children as they cross over into Israel, and us today, that the material world is not the source of our life, that the material world is not the source of our happiness, that the material world is not the source of our joy, or our connection to God. That is not what the material world is. Instead, God is our source of life. The material world came into existence from the utterance of God's mouth. Therefore, we should seek to serve the creator, not the creation. And Jesus says this also in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. And all these other things, all these other things that the Gentiles are worried about, that the Gentiles think is the end all be all, all of these other things that the world is consumed with and is consuming, it'll be added to you. You won't even have to worry about it. So you don't need to worry about it because it's already included in the bigger package. It's kind of like back in the day when. You would get all these deals with cable TV. It'd be like, uh, hey, cable company, how much is just cable? $100 a month. Okay, well, I understand you have phone too. How much would it be if I have cable and phone with you? $80. Wait a second. How much is just the phone? Oh, the phone is also $100 a month, just that. So wait a second. If I just get phone, it's 100 bucks. If I just get cable, it's 100 bucks. But if I get cable and phone, it's $80. Yeah, and you know what? If you throw in internet, it's $65. Well, how much is just internet? It's $100. So I'm getting $300 for $65? Yeah, yeah. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The connection with your creator that which is not material, that which is spiritual, that which is beyond, because it's the source of everything. So if you're connected to that, all the other stuff is included. You'll get your telephone and your internet included. So don't worry about telephone and internet. That's what Moses was trying to remind them of. The manna was a miraculous food. It was a daily reminder for the Israelites that God was their source of life, that God was the source of their sustenance, that God was the source of their provision. It was not part of the natural order. The manna was a new creation every single day, coming forth from the mouth of the Lord daily as he spoke it into being. All things that have come forth from the mouth of God are spoken into being by his word. So when Moses says, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, he reminds us that the whole world was created by the agency of God's speech, which takes us into the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Through his divine word, through his divine speech, in Aramaic, the Memra, in Hebrew, the Devar, in Greek, the Lagos. 
It's through this divine word, the physical universe not only came into existence, but continues to exist. The manna which daily descended from heaven symbolizes God's divine word, his memra, his lagos, entering into this world. This is why Jesus could refer to himself as the bread from heaven in John 6, because he is the word made flesh. And so he says in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So may we understand Deuteronomy 8.3 in this more messianic sense. Speaking of Jesus, the bread from heaven, the divine word that proceeds from the Father, the divine source of everything we need for sustenance, not only in the physical world, but most importantly, in the spiritual world. For we do not live by the sustenance of this world alone, but we live by Messiah, the bread of life alone. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, says this. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you, as we've read? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we'll come back to this verse that we've already turned over a little bit and do a little more turning. So what is it to walk in the ways of of the Lord. What does that mean for us in a practical, everyday manner that can make a difference in our lives? The way we walk in the ways of the Lord boils down to discipleship. And discipleship is this at its heart. Discipleship is the art of imitation. Imitation. It is imitation. That is how we walk in the ways of God. But how does one imitate God? We imitate God through discipleship, first and foremost, and discipleship to Messiah. Absolutely. But even Beyond that, we also imitate God by imitating those who are imitating God. So, for instance, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he does not tell the Corinthians, you could think of the Corinthians as his students, as his um, those that he's discipling, those that he's mentoring, those that he's giving advice to, right? He is very clearly seen by the Corinthians as someone that they seek out. And Paul does not tell them to imitate Jesus. Because in some ways that may be beyond their grasp at that point. They're Corinthians. What in the world do Corinthians know about Jesus? Probably nothing. Probably absolutely nothing. They're Greeks. But they do know Paul. And they know Paul is a Christian, a little Christ, one like Christ. And so Paul doesn't say, imitate Jesus. That's kind of beyond them. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So it's a chain, and the source ultimately is Messiah. But he says, imitate me, because you know me. You have a relationship with me. You can speak with me. You can follow me. You can listen to me. You can ask questions of me. You can interact with me. And by the way, I'm imitating Jesus because I know him better than you do. I've had a longer relationship with him. I have had the Damascus Road experience. On and on and on. I'm an apostle. So you imitate me. 
And if you imitate me, you'll be imitating Jesus. And if you're imitating Jesus, then you're imitating his Father because Jesus speaks that way, that he only does that which has been shown to him by the Father. So Jesus imitates his Father. So you see, even the chain goes beyond Jesus. So Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, as Jesus imitates the Father. Imitation is the highest form of discipleship. We are to imitate Messiah just as he imitated the Father, revealing God in the flesh. All that Jesus did and said he derived directly from his Father. He walked in the ways of his Father. This is John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I do the things that please my Father. And so he imitates the Father. He does what the Father has modeled for him. He does what the Father has showed him. Paul then would say, I then do what Jesus has modeled and what Jesus has shown us. And he tells the Corinthians, so you do what I do. Which is a very important question for you. Yes, I know the pious answer, and on one level it's the correct answer. And yes, it's, you know, the kid's message, Jesus is the answer. You can say you follow Jesus. But I'm telling you, you're not a disciple if that's the only one you're following. Yeah, that's some bold words, I know. Who's discipling you? Who is discipling you? Who is your teacher? Who is the one that knows God deeper than you do, has experienced God deeper than you, and that is actively engaged with you, bringing you along the path? If you do not have that person, you are not being discipled. Discipleship. It's a very big deal. Because, see, when we just say, well, I just follow Jesus— Oh, that's really convenient. That lets you do anything you want. And you just say, well, that's how I understand Jesus. That's why you need a teacher. That's why you need to be disciple. That's why Paul didn't say, just find out what you can about Jesus and do your best. He says, no. You want to know? Get behind me. Get behind me. Who are you behind? It's a very very important question because it's linked to this passage in Deuteronomy about walking in the ways of God. Jesus was the revelation of the glory of the Father. His very life glorified God and that it accurately represented God. He spoke truth when he spoke to his disciple Philip and he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I want to read to you two quotes from passages in uh, the oral tradition that kind of comment on Deuteronomy 10, 12, and this idea also of following God is intimately connected with imitation. In some ways, imitating the attributes of God, but also being in the company of a teacher. So the first comes from uh, Tractate Sota, uh, 14, Folio 14a. Reads like this. Rabbi Chama, son of Rabbi Hananiah, taught the following. What does it mean that you shall walk after the Lord your God? A quote from Deuteronomy. Is it really possible for a human being to walk after the Shekhinah, to walk after God, for has it not been said, quoting Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire? In other words, the obvious question, like, do you really expect human beings to be able to follow God? Like, they can't. Therefore, it must mean to walk in the ways of the Holy One, blessed be he, 
That is, just as he clothed the naked, as it's written in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, so too you should clothe the naked. And the Holy One, blessed be he, visited the sick, as it was written in Genesis 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was still recovering from circumcision. So too you should also visit the sick. And the Holy One, blessed be he, comforted mourners, as it's written in Genesis 25.11, after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, so too you should comfort those who are mourning. And the Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead, as it's written in Deuteronomy 34, 6. And he buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab, and so too you also should bury the dead. So again, do you see the idea? Walking in the ways of God is imitating the ways of God. And sometimes the most tangential way to do that, because you could be, believe it or not, you could be like the Corinthians. You could be far Far away from knowing lots of things, no matter how much you think you know, I promise you don't know much. Nobody does. But the more tangential way is somebody does know a little more than you. They can help show you the way in baby steps to get you along. It's discipleship. It's imitation. It's the pattern. It's shown throughout Scripture. That's what Moses did for Joshua. That's what Elijah did for Elisha. That's what John the Baptist did for Jesus. It's a pattern. It's a pattern throughout Scripture. Another place in the tradition is from the Sifre. It says, Just as the Holy One, blessed be He, is called merciful, you then are to be merciful. He's called gracious. You be gracious. He's called righteous. You be righteous. And see, then this is where it'd be like, okay, well, what's that mean? Well, then somebody can show you what that means that's further along the path. He's called devout. You should be devout. So imitate the ways of Jesus or actually learning the ways of God. That is the very essence of discipleship and the unity with God and walking in the ways of God. Again, I cannot overstate the importance of having a teacher. Books are great. You go downstairs in the basement, I take you to a room full of books that I love and that, yes, I've read and that I continue to read. And I find out lots of information about things I've read. But when I read, here's what I do. I always read it in light of my teacher. What would my teacher think about this? How would my teacher understand this text? Let me talk about this book with my teacher. How does my teacher want me to understand this? How has my teacher lived out this text? Why would my teacher want me to read this book? Why would my teacher not want me to read that book? And then my teacher brings me along so that I can become more like him because he's more like Christ. And so by becoming more like him, I'm becoming more like Christ, and Christ imitated his father. We're very tempted to be little bumblebees and land on this flower and get a little pollen and land on that flower and get a little pollen and land on that flower and get a little pollen. I like what you say, but I don't like what you say about that, so never mind that, but that's good. But I like what he has to say about over here, so I take it from over here. Oh, I disagree with you and you on that, but he's right on that, so I take that. Then you don't have a system, and you're inconsistent, and it's going to break down. Imitation, that is discipleship. That is discipleship. Being mindful of Ikev. Ikev, as we've talked about, means because. Our covenantal obligation binds us to pay careful attention to the details of service to life and love. It is because of that attention that we become present and receptive to the great flow of blessing. It is because of our remembrance of God shining out from the center of all things that we can truly experience this blessing. So as we receive the blessing of Ikev, the blessing is expanded to include an understanding of just how and why this blessing comes to us. Blessing is such a subjective thing. A friend of mine once suffered a a bad case of food poisoning. And even after recovering from the worst of it, 
my friend didn't have an appetite for a week. Even though he's no longer sick, he still couldn't think about eating. And when he saw or smelt food, he wanted no part of it. But finally, when his hunger and his ability to tolerate and even enjoy food finally returned, it felt like a miracle to him. You see, this individual had not taken the blessing of their appetite for granted. He's not taken it for granted ever since. Without the affliction of food poisoning, he would have never understood the blessing of his appetite. Blessing. It's a strange thing. Often in disguise. Often something that on the surface or hearing about or looking at from a distance, we would avoid, and by avoiding it, we avoid our blessing. The Torah portion of Kev gives meaning to the difficulties in our journey. We are afflicted and tested not so that God will know our heart. God knows what's in your heart. God does not have to test you to find out what you're made of. God knows what you're made of because God made you. We're tested so that we come to know what we're made of and the depths of our own hearts and so that we can find the true gift and blessing of being a human being. Our hearts hold the key to making all of our life into a blessing. Again, that's part of the 100 blessing. It's to remind you that all things contain within it the miracle of blessing. The blessing of Akev can be found in its words, Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. You shall eat, and you shall bless, and you shall be satisfied. Which, by the way, the Bible never tells you to pray before you eat. Mm-hmm. It's fine to do that. It's never wrong to pray. Just know you're following a man-made tradition. The Bible tells you to pray after you eat. Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. By the way, so does the small catechism of Dr. Martin Luther. In case you don't believe the Bible, maybe you'll believe Dr. Luther. You eat, then you bless. You shall eat, and you shall bless, and you shall be satisfied. I want to break down that phrase. First, you shall eat. You shall eat. That means open yourself wide to receive all the goodness and beauty of the world. Take in with pleasure the fullness of its nourishment. In other words, it's more than about eating food. It's about taking it in. Opening yourself wide. You shall eat. Then you shall bless. When you eat, when you open yourself wide, when you receive all the goodness and the beauty that this world offers, remember the source of all of that goodness. In other words, taste God in every bite and acknowledge the gift you are receiving. You shall eat, you shall bless, and you shall be satisfied. Instead of immediately reaching out for more of what's next, instead of trying to find what the next bite will be, what the next meal will be, rest. Rest consciously in the fullness of the moment. Absorb that bite. Absorb and savor that morsel that life is serving you there. Pay attention to the flow. You shall eat. Open yourself up to experience all that God wants to give you. Then bless them as the source of it. And then don't be so quick to move on to the next greatest thing, but take time to be mindful and stop and be satisfied. It is so hard for us to just be satisfied. Just so that I don't slander the person's name, even though I don't know him, but there's no purpose to slander his name. At the time of the interview, he had just become the fourth richest person in the world. And so the person said, now that you've become the fourth richest person in the world, what's next? And he said to become the third richest. And see, we celebrate that, don't we? Oh, we love a go-getter. 
That's never satisfied. Got to be that way. Be hungry. Perhaps at times there's some wisdom in that. But it's not a dogma. There's also something to eating, blessing, and being satisfied. Recognizing what you have, being thankful for what you have, and resting in what you have. The addictions and habits that keep us unsatisfied also prevent us from the passionate fulfillment of our relationship to God. The prophet Jeremiah quotes what I would call the divine lover's lament. Jeremiah says this, these words, or speaking for God. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. They have forsaken Maim Kaim. And instead they've made their own cisterns. And they've become broken and can hold no water. In other words, God says, I gave them living water and they weren't satisfied, so they decided to go at it themselves and had a little bit of success until what they began broke and now they've got absolutely nothing. All because they weren't satisfied with living waters. God brought us out of slavery to be in loving relationship with himself and with the part of himself that is in all things. That relationship is fulfilled through the blessing of satisfaction. True satisfaction grows into gratefulness and thus it makes our eating holy and their eating is beyond just food. When we experience true satisfaction, we are filled with energy rather than complacency. True satisfaction prevents overconsumption because it slows down the process and allows us to savor each bite. We first got our puppy. It would eat so fast. Like it would be eating as it was falling into the air into the bowl. Like so fast that it would almost all the time throw up. And there's, we just could not figure out. We tried like forcing them to sit while we poured it. All that. I mean, nothing. So we, ha- we finally had to like get this tier system that where they can eat fast and all that. We had to like train them just to be satisfied and enjoy each bite. Same thing in life. Experiencing satisfaction can cure us of addiction and the chains of habit of a material world. Ekev, because. What is your because this week? Amen. See you in three weeks, August 28th. Let's close with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai noten hatarah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom, Selah. Go in peace.